Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello and welcome. My name is Chad Kruger, and I will be your host of this podcast brought to you by both the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Today, I'm joined by an esteemed group of colleagues to discuss the recent ruling released by CMS that impacts all orthopedic surgeons, not just those who perform hip and knee arthroplasty or any one specialty in particular. There's a lot to discuss tonight, and I'd like to introduce my guests at this time. Thanks, Chad. I am Hutch Huddleston. I'm an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in hip and knee replacements. I work at Stanford University, and I also serve as the Health Policy Council Chair for the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. Yes, thank you, Chad and Hutch. Great to be here. I'm Wilford Gibson. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Virginia Beach in Norfolk, Virginia, I'm the Council and Advocacy Chair, and I also replace hips and knees, and I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Well, thank you both for being with us, and we certainly look forward to hearing what you had to say. And along those lines, Dr. Huddleston, this has been on our radar for a while now. It's something we've certainly talked about, and the rulings finally hit print. So I'm initially interested in what are your initial thoughts on this ruling? Go ahead. You got the mic. Give me what you're thinking when you were reading this ruling. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Approximately 80% of the time, CMS goes along with the recommendations from the RUC. So this is something that we expected based on what the RUC recommended. Needless to say, after approximately 21 months of work on this subject, we were all deeply disappointed in the ruling. I can echo that as well. Dr. Gibson? Yeah, Chad, the AAOS is disappointed. Uh, We're very concerned about this ruling, what has come out, the Medicare payment fee schedule comes out once a year. Usually in late August, early September, this year it popped up, it seemed to me, a few weeks earlier. And it had some striking differences. Besides just the cuts that we've been working on with AUKUS for the past nearly two years, one of the commercial insurers made a complaint or raised the issue as a stakeholder to CMS that they thought we need to revalue those codes. So, and uh, Hutch spoke to that, and we, you know, we fought with that with, through the process with the RUC, through the AMA, and to CMS, and they really didn't It seemed to listen to us or take our recommendations. They may have listened, but they didn't take our recommendations, and we received a, about a 5% cut on just those codes, 27130 total hip and 27447 total knee, but it, it's worse than that because there's budget neutrality, and CMS also came out with increasing the evaluation and management codes. And when they do that for office visits, that actually causes other codes like the CPT codes to be reduced. So what we do as orthopedic surgeons now has been devalued, which is, uh, and those who are doing total joints devalued even further. So with the change in the conversion factor and by upping the EMM codes, it's actually resulted in about a a 5% cut for orthopedic surgeons and a number of other surgical specialties are also cut and and feel the same way I believe as we do. It's more than just cutting the codes for total hip and total knee, it's cutting all the musculoskeletal orthopedic codes for CPT codes on amount to balance that with those OV codes that were bumped up for all of us. We do get some bonus there on the OV outpatient uh, codes 
those outpatient visit EMM codes, but they're not necessarily going, we're not going to see that as much as we would see if we kept our standard payments for our CPT codes. I think uh, Hutch can also speak to it as they did the revaluation of the codes for total hip and total knee, that granular process includes E&M codes. And with the upgrades, when they came, when CMS came out with the new codes reimbursement, they didn't include the new upgrade E&M, which is included inside of the CPT is, uh, since it's a 90 day bundle. So there's also a code that's uh, out there now that was included that will GPC 1X. If there were to be, discontinuation of the globals, but the globals didn't happen. So since that's a code that some may be able to charge and use for some visits that would be inside of a global, they now have to set aside money from that. So it's, uh, it's, it's, there's some drastic changes, I think, is to just say things in a couple of words, drastic and concerning. You know, I think you summarized, it's quite a large ruling. I think you summarized the, the main points quite well and how it can affect some of us going forward. You know, Dr. Huddleston, I'm curious to hear kind of in broader picture terms, how do you see this ruling first affecting your practice? And then how do you see this ruling affecting patients? One of the most disappointing aspects of this is that orthopedic surgeons have been leading the way for nearly a decade now with participation in alternative payment models, specifically the comprehensive care for joint replacement, as well as BPCI Classic and BPCIA. And we did a really good job. We embraced the concept. We thought it was the right thing to do for our patients and our practices and our profession, quite frankly. And we were able to demonstrate with a lot of hard work that we could indeed improve the value of the care that we delivered if we did a massive care redesign, which required a tremendous amount of work. And the mainstay of our ability to be successful in improving the value of care was really trying to optimize the patients to get them prepared for the operation to reduce complications and to do a significant amount of care coordination so that they had a shorter length of stay and a fewer of the patients would go to a skilled nursing facility after the operation. And we demonstrated that we could save the system a lot of money. And the essence of what the survey from the RUC showed, which was the basis for their determination to devalue our services from 20.72 work RVUs to 19.6 work RVUs was essentially one less day in the hospital, so one less post-operative visit. As you know, this process, which really can be triggered at any time and it needs to be triggered on a regular basis, especially for high usage codes like hip and knee replacement, was, was started by a nomination by Anthem, which is one of the largest for-profit healthcare companies in the world. And it was actually anonymous. We had to fight with CMS to get them to release who it was. So they started this, but essentially because we're doing a better job with the patients and the patients get out of the hospital a day earlier, that was the basis to reduce the codes. And Anthem, when they started, was really concerned about the fact they said, oh, well, none of the preoperative workups are being done by the orthopedic surgeons. They're done by primary care physicians and by anesthesiologists, and they can do the operation a lot faster. Well, there's, there's no question that the survey results were very conclusive that we're actually taking still approximately 100 minutes to do hip and knee replacement on average. So essentially, if you look at it, we have embraced value-based care in this transition. And uh, because we've been good at it, it's system a lot of money, CMS is now turning around and saying, oh, we're going to use your efficiencies 
to devalue what you do. So I, I think that's very detrimental, not only for the hip and knee arthroplasty community, but also for other specialties that are just getting started in alternative payment models. And they're going to see what's happened to us. And I, I don't think that's going to help those specialties embrace the concept as we have. I think that's a valid point. And certainly if I wasn't uh, participating in value-based care and I was one of those subspecialties that, that hasn't hit yet, uh, I'd certainly be a little concerned myself that showing any type of efficiency could be uh, used against me in the future. Dr. Gibson, have you had any, any other similar concerns or any other concerns that you've heard from other subspecialties along those lines that Dr. Huddleston just brought up? Well, I think it's very important to say what Hutch has said, and it is clearly one of the big problems is the revaluation of total hip and total knee. I guess what I, as part of AAOS, understand that we're lockstep with AUKUS, but it is a bigger problem. Uh, there's more than just the cuts of the CPT codes for total hip and total knee. With the revaluation, well, with the E&M codes being upgraded, we've now created cost in this budget-neutral scenario that's required by Congress. CMS has to follow those rules unless we can get our legislators to change that or ask for a waiver, which is what we're asking for. That's probably the only way we can quickly change this. Of course, we're also making responses to CMS to try to influence them that these are bad ideas. But when the E&M codes go up for office visits, because of the budget neutrality, it has to come out somewhere else and where it comes out of the CPT codes and the surgical procedures. And so that's where we're going to lose, not just on total hips and total knees. Actually, when you look at it, we're going to lose about 5% on the budget neutrality loss from the E&M codes being increased for outpatient visits. And then we're, we're going to also lose about 5%. I think that Hutch gave you the conversion factor change where it's changed significantly downward. First time, and I was just looking at some numbers back from 2001 up till now, the code had been pretty constant or going up. This is the first year it's really dropped. And I guess for me, you know, there's so many things to talk about. <laughs> so stop me if I go too long. But our practices right now are struggling. There's a pandemic going on in the world. Our practices are trying to stay in business. We, you know, we've got cost of living increases with rent that we have to keep paying rent. We've got employees we are paying for. We're very thankful for some of the assistance we've gotten from Congress with the payment protection program, one that jumps to immediately to mind. And also HHS had been generous and fair with advancing us money, understanding that we weren't doing that many total joints. So our numbers are way down, but we're looking at into the future for the whole next year. And, and setting a rule like this is uh, really uh, dangerous, in my opinion. And Dr. Bosco has put a letter out, a media statement that echoes these things I'm saying right now. So I guess one of my questions, and this can go to either one of you, is we've done a lot of research, certainly recently, uh, along these lines to try to show kind of the work that we do preoperatively, intraoperatively, postoperatively, and how we've improved the care of our patients. We've talked to CMS in length about all these things. We've showed them the data as well. Um, and yet it seems like either our discussions weren't heard or they were kind of overruled, for lack of a better term there. How else going forward can we have more fruitful discussions that, that we feel that we can really get them to understand our data? Or is it that even no matter what we say, that the ruling's already kind of set in stone and it's kind of just a frustrating situation to be in? Yeah, so Chad, I think it's important to point out that in the proposed rule, CMS said that they were going to take the RUC recommendations for 27130 and 27447 of 19.6 down from 20.72, but they also 
made a very clear acknowledgement that they heard loudly and clearly that we are doing significantly more work than we have in the past on the pre-optimization side so that we can have one shorter length to stay. And that is an invitation to continue to engage with CMS so that we can help them figure out how they can capture this pre-optimization work. So I think that that's very promising, but I do agree with you that we feel at this point that we've made a very clear case as to why our levels of reimbursement should be kept the same and not get cut. And I think it might be worth taking a minute or two just to go back and sort of go over the last 21 months so that we know what the story is and how we got to this point, because that will inform us a little bit in terms of where we can go next in terms of working with CMS and seeing if they can help us capture this work and keep us at level reimbursement. I think it's important for our membership to know what our plan was, how we executed it, and what we are going to do from here. So I'll just start off by the fact that we feel that we gave CMS a very compelling argument, as well as the RUC a very evidence-based compelling argument to demonstrate the work that we're doing. And feel that we gave CMS a very compelling argument, as well as the RUC a very evidence-based compelling argument to demonstrate the work that we're doing and why it should not be devalued. And unfortunately, obviously, they didn't take that, but we're going to start with just making sure that they fully understand what happened in the process that allowed us to make a recommendation that we should stay at 20.72. So first and foremost, We all know that this additional pre-optimization work is going on. And as I said, that's how we've been able to keep folks in the hospital a day less on average. And that was the basis for them recommending the the reduction in our work RVUs. So in an effort to do that, we proposed a modified survey instrument for the RUC so that we could capture that pre-optimization work that's being done. So the RUC said, well, we we can't do that because we'd have to do it for everybody else. And also there's no compelling data to justify this. So fortunately, they did allow us to add a few questions for the practice expense side, specifically for us to ask clinical staff time that is facilitating this pre-optimization, which is complementary and certainly directed by surgeons and other qualified health professionals, i.e. nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. So we were disappointed at the fact that they wouldn't let us use a modified survey for the surgeons, but we were able to get a few questions in. And interestingly enough, the questions that we got in, the responses demonstrated that indeed there was on average, so the 50th percentile or median of the responses demonstrated that there was actually 90 minutes of time being spent on average per patient to get them ready for the operating room. And in the current rock valuation, we're only given 60 minutes. And so that was an additional 30 minutes that was demonstrated in the survey. And unfortunately, despite the fact that we were allowed to ask those questions and the answers and results of the survey reflected exactly what we expected, when we went to have our meeting with the RUC in October, we went through the practice expense side of things and they said, oh, we can't do that for you. We can't give you those extra 30 minutes, even though your survey showed that you are doing indeed 30 more minutes of work, because if we had to do it for you, we'd have to do it for everybody. So we were very disappointed in that. But there are some specifics about the survey data that was applied at the behest of the RUC that I think also warrant some mention. So the response from the orthopedic surgeons for the RUC survey was quite robust by RUC standards. It was over 100 responses. 
and the median time that was spent on various tasks that were asked about generated a work RVU of 24.0. So that's the 50th percentile. All right, we recommended to the Ruck that we would stay at 20.72, not the 50th percentile, which would have been 24, which would have been an increase, okay? We agreed to go to 20.72, that's less than the 25th percentile, and they still wouldn't take that. So, so that's obviously very troubling from a programmatic or methodologic standpoint, and I think that's something that we're going to hear more about as we go on through this process. But in addition to the actual survey data, which we obviously shared with CMS to point this out, which we thought was compelling enough in and of itself, and I will mention that we advocated for an additional 30 minutes of pre-service time. The standard pre-service time is 40 minutes, and this is work that has to be done before the day before surgery when the global package starts. We asked the RUC for 30 additional minutes of pre-service time on top of that 40 minutes. And we said, this is what our data shows people are actually spending time on. And it's actually more than additional 30 minutes. It is significantly more than that, but we're just going to call it 30 minutes on average. So the RUC said, no, we're not going to accept that. So from a pure survey standpoint, we feel that the data is there to justify having us have no cut to our reimbursement. In addition to this effort, we embarked on a multi-institution research project to have people quantify the amount of work that's being done in the perioperative period. And we now have data from tens of thousands of patients that's peer-reviewed that we shared with CMS that very precisely quantifies the amount of work that's being done, especially the pre-optimization work, and it exceeds that additional 30 minutes that we asked for. And it exceeds that additional 30 minutes that we have demonstrated in the survey from clinical practice time. So between the survey data and the peer review data, we feel that we have shown to CMS exactly why we deserve not to have 19.6, but 20.72. And unfortunately, they still went with 19.6. So that's going to be our first pitch. We will say we're happy to work with CMS and we're glad they gave us a window to go ahead and try to help them capture this work formally. But first and foremost, we're going to tell them, we'll do this with you, but you can't be cutting us until this is worked through. So there are a couple additional strategies that we have, and these are our second and third choices, but there is a care coordination code that can be used, and it's for 30 minutes of time. It's an ENM code. It's the visit that has to happen before the operation. But the problem is, is that it has to happen all on the same day. And that's not how things go for us. We have to call the cardiologist. We have to call the nephrologist. We have to make sure that somebody's going to be there to take care of Mrs. Jones when she comes home from the hospital so she doesn't have to go to a skilled nursing facility. We have to have her call her grandson to come from four hours away to spend a week with her so she can stay at home rather than a skilled nursing facility. So none of this is done uh, 30 minutes at a time. It's done in a very fragmented way. So we're going to ask CMS to look at maybe changing the language in that code of care coordination, and that would allow us to get back to 20.72. And lastly, we can always create new codes to create ways to document how much work is being done. The problem with creating new codes is it's going to take several years, and perhaps most disturbing 
is that there's no question that it would increase the administrative burden for everybody, not only the surgeons, but also for CMS. And so between having to use another care coordination code on top of what we're already submitting or creating brand new codes, that's going to tremendously increase the administrative burden for everybody. And we really don't think CMS wants to go that route. So we really think that we have compelling data to support keeping us at 20.72. And we're hoping that CMS will take another look at it. I might say, if I will, it is a proposed rule that was released, but we've only had a little bit of history there and changing it back in 2013 when we were looking at 20 and 30 percent cuts for uh, total hips and total knees the first time that i'm ever aware uh, any medical organization was able to influence and change so on one hand we have some history of change on the other side of the coin is can lightning strike twice so it is a proposed rule we do have a comment period now that runs up until the final rules probably released in november starting and it will be effective january 1st 2021 so I can assure you that our Office of Government Relations and the AAOS are on this, as well as with AUKUS and other specialty societies. Spine, for instance, is looking at Medicare putting prior authorization out there for cervical spine procedures. Uh, you know, it had been the only prior authorization procedures for Medicare were cosmetic procedures. So this is like a brand new thing that now with traditional Medicare, I'm not talking about Medicare Advantage, having to deal with uh, prior authorization. So I'm sure we, you know, we have NAS working on that as a specialty society with AAOS. But we have time now to give some input. And uh, we were formulating the letters. We sent some initial response that we were disappointed and concerned, feel these things are dangerous, these changes. So uh, uh, it is something that we're working on daily, very hard, and we hope to see some benefits. But to speak briefly, you know, I'm, I'm in a BPCIA. I, I think cuts may also be in an alternate payment model, uh, one or the other. We've saved Medicare billions of dollars with these programs. Now, they'll say that uh, looking at CJR and some of the earlier classic BPCI bundles, they weren't able to save money, but they are saving money. And there's gain sharing that a number of our practices are, are participating in and having success. So we have also looked at the outcomes, that patients are doing better. We've saved Medicare money and we're having better outcome. And that way that is pun is, you know, the preoperative optimization of the patient, the risk stratification of the patients. And we now have care redesign where we see the patients back more frequently during that global period. So if you only saw the patient one time in a global period, well, we wouldn't be saving them all this money because they'd be staying in a uh, skilled nursing facility or inpatient rehab facility, which is really what was costing them the most money. And perhaps, as we know now with COVID-19, probably one of the worst places to be. So we have helped tremendously. We've saved billions of dollars, in my estimation, for Medicare. And now they reward us with a cut, not just one cut, but a cut on top of a cut. And that's, for me, is the worst. We have, as far as doing length of stay, when we were cutting back length of stay, you know, they just used that, as, as Hutch also alluded to, when they calculated the CPT codes, they don't give us uh, the credit for that extra day in the hospital rounding. So you get paid for the granular amount of doing the procedure for the 90 minutes. You get paid for maybe one post-op day, and they equate that or do a crosswalk over from what an E&M visit would be and so you do get one day for that, but probably nothing more. So we're getting cut beyond what we should be. 
And I think that's the disappointing thing. It, it, anybody in any type of job that you do, if your services are devalued, it, it makes you think, well, why am I doing this? Is it worth it? And, and I think all of us know that, that question is crazy because we see our patients, we see the outcomes with total hip replacement. Well over 90 plus percent of them are very happy and have tremendous outcomes and durability of the implants that last in 20 years or probably more now. So it's very disappointing. There's a lot of things to talk about. So go ahead and ask more questions. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I mean, obviously, it's a, this is disappointing. We've mentioned that a few times here. Obviously, both of you are highly involved in this process and will continue to be highly involved in the process. And you know, we as members, thank you for your efforts. I mean, what can we do, right? Yeah, so what we're asking our members to do, Chad, is to reach out to their congressional representation and just tell the story about what has happened. And we think that will help amplify our points. And as I said, we have had a advocacy strategy that has had a regulatory side involving meetings with officials within CMS and Health and Human Services and the White House's Office of Management and Budget. And then on the legislative slide, we engage our local members to help us get the word across that this isn't necessarily something that we think is fair or is justified. So as you probably are aware of, as a replacement for the Academy's National Orthopedic Leadership Conference that's held every June in D.C. and obviously wasn't held this year because of COVID, we are doing basically local in-district virtual visits and we're asking members to participate uh, in that. And, and we have a, a range of topics that have been put forth uh, to discuss with our congressional representation. Uh, but this uh, potential devaluation of our services for hip and knee arthroplasty, as well as the reduction in the conversion factor, which is, as Wilfred has said, is another roughly 5% cut on top of the proposed 5% cut for our work RVUs. This discussion will be front and center with those meetings. So we are in the process of putting out some very detailed information as how you can go ahead and get in touch with your local congressional representation and go from there. Yeah, Chad, uh, I, I feel like Hutch stole a lot of my thunder there. I, I was on Jeopardy and I was too slow to the buzzer. But I think we probably need to say it twice because a lot of our fellows will say, wow, I got to do something. Now, first and foremost, you can give to your PAC and your PAC is supporting the advocacy efforts that are legislative and regulatory. You can't just go to CMS or call them up and say, hey, I want to talk to you guys. Uh, it doesn't happen. You can't lobby them. And they're actually now in a period where they're really not even communicating with us except for through those letters I was mentioning. But what you can do, as Hutch said, uh, the NOLC this year, 2020, was canceled because of the COVID, just like the annual meeting was canceled. So that's the day that we have several hundred of our fellows, the Board of Counselors, the Board of Specialty Society, that go to the Hill. And we usually have uh, three to four asks that we take to the Hill. And we speak to our legislators, and we have representatives from every state and almost all the special societies. So it's very effective. We try to pick something that's moving. Well, we had three topics that were moving, and then the Medicare payment fee schedule dropped last week. I think it's only been about six days now. And so things have been moving really fast. We got a one pager together. If you really are interested and you should be, go to your state orthopedic society, communicate with your executive director, and he or she will give you the one pager for this issue as well as three others. But we set this up to be the August in-district task force. Danny Guy, our first vice president of the AOS, is the lead of that task force. 
we've been setting this thing up to replace what we lost by not having the opportunity to uh, advocate on Capitol Hill back in early June. But now our members of Congress are in district. That means at home. And so our state societies have already set up meetings. So if you have a special relationship with your congressman or perhaps your senator, you can make a meeting with them if you've got that ability to do so. If not, go to your state executive director of your orthopedic society. And I can assure you that most of them have meetings already set up and you'll be participating by Zoom because the members of Congress, for the most part, don't want to be meeting face to face with a lot of constituents and risk themselves getting COVID. But their staff are there, the legislative assistants are there to listen to you. But that's where I'd go. Yeah, and there's a couple other ways that we're going to approach this. And I think it's important for our membership to understand that. So in addition to what the actual members can do, on a formal level, we are in the process of requesting follow-up meetings with the officials in the government, specifically CMS, HHS, and OMB, to follow up on these issues. And we had discussions with these folks in January and February. So we don't know whether they'll take our meetings or not, but we're hopeful that they will, especially since they invited us to demonstrate for them how they could help us capture this work formally so that we can be recognized for it. So that's promising. But in terms of what we actually are going uh, to say to them to reiterate what we've already told them. Certainly compelling. Dr. Gibson? Yeah, thanks, Chad. I don't know how much time we have, but I just wanted to hit a couple of high points. Uh, Hutch gave a very granular review of that and being involved with the CLA, one of my standing committees as a coding coverage and reimbursement committee. And if you sat through all that and you caught that, you need to sign up to go to the CAP, the committee appointment program and get yourself on the coding coverage and reimbursement committee. But there's a tremendous amount of work done with the relative value services utilization committee, the RUC, that got us to this point. We did everything we're supposed to do without taking a nuclear option, which is not in our best interest in getting out of it. We have to work with it, especially now in these remaining days during the comment period. So one thing, you know, we're, the AOS has taken really a double prong approach, legislative and regulatory. The legislative ask is to waive the budget neutrality. And what that will allow is for these E&M outpatient visit codes, they can go up across the board. It'll cost Medicare more, but it won't cut our CPT codes, not just total hip and total knee, but all CPT musculoskeletal codes. So that the problem for that is they're gonna ask for an offset or how are we gonna pay for that? So we gotta get our members of Congress to start thinking now, bring this to their awareness, go to your state society, meet with them in August. And we're gonna also, with our task force, carry that water for us, those that aren't able to do that. But there's also the Omnibus and Reconciliation Act of 1989 that requires CMS not to pay one doctor more money than another doctor for the same service. Relatively, there are some geographic areas where there's some complicated formulas that I won't go into that adjust for that. But what we want them to do is to not cut the CPT codes for total hip and total knee. And we want them to waive budget neutrality. Those are probably, if you can just remember two things, those are the two big things. Remind them that we're in a pandemic. Many of our practices are struggling right now to stay afloat. And this type of cut 
projected into the future where the future is the unknown right now. I don't know about most, but most of us haven't ramped back up to 100% yet. And we're looking at potential second wave of COVID-19, COVID-20. So what can the average orthopedic surgeon who just wants to help and knows he's affected by this or she's affected by this, what can we do to further assist in these efforts that both AUKUS and AOS have put forth? I would encourage each of you, first and foremost, get in touch with your state society, get in touch with your members of Congress, make them aware of this very pressing, important issue. If you need help, if you need guidance, you can contact the Office of Government Relations in D.C. of AAOS. You can actually email Hayes, that's our legislative director, Catherine Hayes, Catherine Boudreaux Hayes, but Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S, at AAOS.org. And she'll get back with you for this task force. She'll also get back with you with what's going on on the Hill. But that's the most we can do right now. And our regulatory staff, Shirasi Deb and others, are right now putting together the response letters that uh, I get to look at, we edit, we give them to the, up the presidential line of AOS to, to send to CMS. And we're hopeful that they'll respond. If not, it's going to be very difficult in the future working with them. And I thank you both for those summaries. I mean, it is a challenge. I think we've demonstrated the value over and over again that we bring to our patients and our communities. And I think we just want to make sure we can continue to provide that value and not have something like this in place that would be detrimental to our patients. You've gone over a lot of the details and also outlined the path forward. We're wrapping up on time here. Any last thoughts that either of you would like to provide? Number one, first and foremost, we follow our strategic plan, our vision. We want to be the trusted leaders in musculoskeletal health, but we have to look out for our profession and we have to look out for our patients. So much of this comes down to access for some of the most vulnerable people, our Medicare population. And when we make drastic cuts, drastic change in the very midst of a pandemic where the future is very uncertain, it's irresponsible. And I know that I'm reflecting the tone in the media statement from Dr. Bosco of what he sent out. And it's what we're going to send to CMS, to the director, Secretary Seema Verma, the same tone letter. We want to work with them. We've done tremendous work. We are, orthopedic surgeons are the only group right now that has really made their alternative payment models work. And we're the champions for what they want us to do. And this is a very unfortunate way, at least the appearance of cutting someone when they're doing something for you has horrible optics. Well said. I would just echo what Wilford said in that in addition to the many unfortunate things associated with this, at the end of the day, this is an access issue and it will undoubtedly threaten access. As Wilford has said, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Orthopedic surgeons voluntarily shut down their practice for a minimum of six weeks and some of them many longer. We're hurting just like everybody else and it's now at the point where the majority of orthopedic surgeons who work in private practice can't necessarily keep the lights on. And if we're going to face further cuts, especially in the manner by which they have been leveled or proposed to be leveled, at the end of the day, there are going to be problems with access, which we already know we're on the cusp of a major problem. So that being said, I am optimistic that there is some daylight and that CMS is proposing that we can continue to work with them so that we'll be able to capture this work and maintain level reimbursement. Uh, I always like ending on an optimistic note. So I think that sounds good. And again, I speak on behalf of everyone. I appreciate all the work that you, Dr. Gibson, and everyone else in the advocacy arm from AUKUS and AOS has done on our behalf for this issue. 
So thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. Dr. Huddleston, Dr. Gibson, thank you for your thoughts. Certainly look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Yeah, thanks very much, Chad and Wilfred. I really enjoyed our discussion. There certainly is a lot to talk about, and there's going to yeah, be a lot happening here, in the next Thank few months, so hold on. Us. I think this is an issue that we really need to get before the membership. At the end of the day, it is about access for our patients. I do want to be optimistic, and I continue to be optimistic, but I'm going to go down swing. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.